So what are we talking about this uh, wonderful Tuesday morning? I'm not sure, but I think we should write a test for it first. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode three of iFreaks. This week on our panel, we have Pete Hodgson. Hello from Butte Lake. Ben Sherman. <laughs> Butte Lake. Very well done. Very well done. <laughs> we have uh, Ben Sherman. Hello from Houston. Uh, we also have uh, Rod Schmidt. Hello from Salt Lake City. Sorry, Rod. I was looking at Pete's picture and I was like, no, I already said Pete. <laughs> yeah, so for those who didn't get the joke, we were looking at the transcription from last episode, or from episode one, and... Uh, Did that uh, get fixed? It got fixed, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so originally, uh, Pete said he's from Berkeley, and it came through as Butte Lake, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious. It was pretty... I, I was looking through the transcript. It's pretty hilarious how, how much my accent is has caused issues for whatever personal machine is doing that transcription is, is definitely challenged by my accent. We're really sorry to the transcriptionist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll pick our panelists more carefully next time. Oh, it's my fault, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, anyway, and, and you can tell I had to ask if it got fixed because... I just ask Mandy to do it and assume it's done. So. Yeah, no, she fixed it. She fixed it very, very quickly. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm used to that. I'm living in America. When you, you when you phone up like um, you know automated voice systems, they often don't work with British accents. So I have to put on like a stupid American accent when I'm uh, <laughs> operator that, <that's> reservations. It's funny, too, because a lot of times on those automated systems, they have somebody with a British accent or a fake British accent, like, yeah. speaking, so. Yeah, yeah, but they don't understand British. Siri didn't understand British for a very long time, because you couldn't get, like, if you lived in the U.S., you couldn't get American, sorry, you couldn't get British Siri to work with, like, American information. So if I wanted to actually know about anything about America, like where I live, I'd have to use the American version of Siri, but she... She couldn't understand my my um, pronunciation. <laughs> so is the British Siri more polite? The British Siri sounds ridiculous. Like, the British Siri sounds like a serious Etonian toff. He's like, how can I help you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm your butler. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, should we start talking about testing iOS apps? I think we should just spend the whole uh, episode talking about my accent and uh, Siri. Uh, your that accent is going to, to provide us with plenty of <laughs> material over the next while. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about testing instead then. Uh, yeah, I, why, I, why doesn't anybody do it? <laughs> That's a good question. So this, actually, this is a good this is good um, good timing for me because I'm actually giving a, a talk about um, testing with Kiwi, which we'll we'll get into I'm sure at some point during the show. Um, uh, on Thursday, so in, in a couple of days' time, which would be, I guess, after the podcast comes out, but the Coca Conf in, in San Jose. So I guess this is kind of top of my mind anyway, which is convenient. Yeah, why don't people do testing in, in iOS? Well, I guess I have a biased kind of sample set because I talk to a bunch of like ThoughtWorks type agile dudes who, who are fans of testing. And I think also all of us actually are, or a lot of us kind of come in from the Ruby community, which is famously obsessed with testing. But I don't actually know. Do you guys have a sense for how many people in the wide, whether it's really true that no one really in the wider iOS community tests or very few people test? What, what's, yeah, I mean, in, in my experience, very few people do. I, 
I feel like in general, people agree that it's a good idea. Uh, but where the rubber hits the road, it's uh, definitely more difficult than it is in Ruby to effectively test something. So I don't know. I mean, if, you, if you've ever looked at the tools when you do file new project and there's a checkbox which says include unit tests, which is kind of like a nod that people should pay attention to it from Apple. But that's about all they give us. Yeah. Once you have the unit test project, it uses send testing kit, which is about as arcane of testing tool as <laughs> I've ever used. And uh, I don't know, you run into it, like you can test things, right? You can say, I have a calculator, I'm going to add two and seven, and I assert that the value is nine. But if you do something like add two items to an array and assert that the count is two, you actually have to cast the results of the array's yeah. count method to an NS integer because it returns an NSU integer, an unsigned integer. And it's stuff like that that's just like, oh, God, I don't want to be doing that. Like, the the assertion macros are just really painful to write. And once you get beyond that first level of testing a calculator, you're like, this is not realistic. I would say there's more friction, initial friction in, in getting started than there is in something in a more dynamic language like like Ruby. But actually... Well, so the, the thing that I don't get is um, compared to a language like Java or C Sharp, I actually think that Objective-C lends itself to unit testing more than those languages because Objective-C is actually pretty dynamic. It's got that small talk heritage where you can just send an arbitrary message to an arbitrary object and you can kind of change stuff at runtime and do, do clever stuff like that. So I actually think in some ways Objective-C is, is a pretty good uh, environment for for doing unit testing, but I don't think culturally it's there. I definitely don't think Apple have a a culture of testing as as you can uh, like. I I kind of infer that by the fact that every time they release a new version of Xcode, they break command line the ability to run tests on the command line. Like mm-hmm. I, I think almost every single time. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. going to ask that. I don't. I don't. I've never heard of Apple having any kind of formal unit testing procedures that they go through or, or whatever. So, I mean, well, so actually, I guess we should t- take a step back for a second and uh, and I'll, I'll channel Josh Schusser and say we should kind of get some definitions. Um, <laughs> I've been fantasizing about doing that for a while. Um, I'll, I'll tell Josh you were fantasizing about him. Yeah, yeah. There's different types of testing, and I think especially for people who aren't haven't done a lot of testing, it, it kind of gets a little bit mixed together in people's heads, but the two main kind of differences when you're talking about automated testing is like low-level unit testing, which is kind of what we've been talking about just now, and then like higher-level acceptance tests or functional tests. They have different names, which are kind of testing your code at a higher level. And sometimes you wind up with integration tests, which test uh, two yep. or more things at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So there's, and yeah, like it's it's kind of convenient to try and say there's these two types, but actually I think it's more of a spectrum, like you're saying, like mm-hmm. from very low level testing an individual method to very very high level testing your entire application plus all of its dependent services and um, you know testing the entire world pretending to be a user. And I think most people use the word unit test as a kind of a loose term. Sometimes people just just mean any kind of automated test. I don't know. I think Apple don't do much at all with unit testing. They do do a fair amount with uh, high-level automated tests. They have this UI automation tool that, that they ship in instruments, and um, uh, they have people whose business card says, like, test automation manager and stuff like that inside of Apple. So they definitely take it quite seriously internally, but I'm, I'm not sure that they... I know for a fact they don't use the same tools internally 
uh, for, for like that high-level UI automation. I don't think they actually use UI automation internally for automated testing, for example. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, you know, it's also, you, you can't just have the one tool, right? They're, yep. the, the granularity really matters. And yeah. if you try to write your whole test suite using something like UI automation, you're going to be in for a really painful time. Yep. Um, as you decide to change your UI a bit, or if you ch- just rearrange things a little bit, you're going to be, or if your your app is actually broken, is it going to pinpoint the area where it's broken, or is half your test suite going to fail? That feedback loop and knowing uh, the the ability to pinpoint failures and knowing exactly what's broken is really important. It also has nothing to do with driving your design except for the fact that um, some high-level pieces will be um, uh, testable. So you'll, you'll be able to set the world up in a way that you can have like a consistent state and test against that. But, you know, it just doesn't negate the need for lots of uh, fine-grained unit tests. Yeah, there's this thing called the, the testing pyramid, and I'll try and find a, good, a, a link to a good article about it and put it in the show notes. But um, it's, the idea is that at the, very, at, the kind of, at the base of the pyramid, you have this broad, wide foundation of like uh, focused unit tests, so very small, um, very small focused tests. And then in the middle, you have the kind of integration tests that Chuck was talking about. And then at the tippy top, uh, the cherry on the top is um, acceptance tests, so these high-level tests that you would use something like UI automation for. And, but really, if you don't build on that foundation of unit tests, then you're not going to get any value out of that other stuff. It's really the, the unit tests provide the most bang for your buck in terms of feedback and, um, uh, which, well, feedback, which I think is the main thing that testing gives you. Um, yeah, I, I think it's interesting, too, that uh, in my experience, anyway, the cost of writing a unit test is usually much, much lower than writing an integration test or an acceptance test. Yeah. Definitely mm-hmm. the cost of maintaining um, a, a unit test suite is way less than the cost of maintaining an acceptance testing suite. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, there's a lot of value in having those unit tests because it'll tell you exactly which piece of code is broken. Yep. The other pieces, though, are important for just overall knowing that things work the way they should. I mean, when it comes right down to it, there are points of failure that are hard to test or hard to isolate. And uh, so having something at the top level that, you, you know, goes all the way down the stack and all the way back up is something that's really, really nice just for knowing that your application works. Yep. And particularly if you're, if you're a fan of like mocking and stubbing things, then you need some kind of higher level tests to make sure that all the different parts of your application are actually um, talking to each other properly. Because if you're faking out the world, then you actually, if the world changes, you don't have any way of, of your tests won't give you feedback that the world has changed because you're faking out. Let's say you're you're testing against, um, your app uses the Twitter API. If you're faking out all of your interactions with the Twitter API for testing purposes and then Twitter update their API, if you don't have a test that actually hits the real-world Twitter API, then you won't know that things have broken until, you know, you start getting one-star reviews in the App Store. Um, that's kind of a crappy example because Twitter aren't going to change their API without telling anyone, but... Um, that actually, kind of actually, they do. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do. I saw, I heard about that on Core Intuition a couple episodes back, oh. uh, where they just up and changed something for a bunch of apps that worked a long time ago, and and uh, they didn't know about it until their users complained. But yep. yeah, your your point is completely valid. I I really like in Ruby the tool uh, VCR, where you can say make a network request as long as I don't have a canned response already, and then it will take that in, uh, check that into your repository as a cassette that has the response status code, the response headers in the body. 
And um, the subsequent requests are then fast because you have that response. But at any point in time, you can just say once a month, just delete all of your cassettes and have them run against the real APIs again. Yeah, and there are similar tools. I've heard of at least one or two similar tools to VCR for Objective-C, which you, I think especially if you're using AF networking, there's, I don't remember the name of it, I'd have to look it up, but there's like AF networking VCR or something like that. I think it has VCR, or, it's probably got like some cute name like a, AF networking Betamax or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of tools out there and there's also the other alternative to like faking that stuff out inside of your process is to set up a fake server that pretends to be Twitter but that is under your control. Um, and that's something that a lot of ThoughtWorks projects we end up doing because we're a lot of our work is integrating with big enterprise systems that have all of these services all over the place. So um, a lot of times we end up building a fake representation or a fake version of the, the backend services that we integrate with so that we can test the way that our stuff interacts with all of those backend systems. So I, wa- I want to change tactics a little bit. And uh, we've, we've kind of been talking about some of the mechanics of testing. For people who are kind of on the fence or don't believe that there is enough value in testing, why do we test our code? I mean, why is it worth it? My take is that the reason we do, the, the, the first thing that should sell you on unit testing, there's other things that you get after the fact, but or as you kind of start doing it more, but the first thing that you get from, the first piece of value you get from your unit tests is feedback as you're making changes. So when I write software, I hit, command B all the time to make sure that my code still compiles. And what I want to do is I do that all the time because if I if I forget a square bracket or um, leave off a, a semicolon or whatever, I want to get feedback straight away um, so that I know like if I if if it was five seconds since the last time I hit command B and I've introduced a bug during those five seconds, it's pretty easy for me to figure out where in the code that bug is, right? And and in this case the bug is just, you know, like I forgot a, a semicolon or whatever. So people have been, I think all developers have that habit of doing that now, of just like frequently compiling their application to get feedback from the compiler on the syntax of their of their code. And then I think what we've started to see, especially when Apple introduced the new like LLVM and, and Clang toolchain, was um, the compiler has started to get really, really smart. And it actually knows about the semantics of your code as well to an extent. So it will say, hey, I think you need to auto-release this um this uh, this object, or you know, you're sending you're sending a method to a object that doesn't accept that doesn't know how to respond to that to that message. So that's like a, a higher level of feedback. And again, it's really really useful to you know when I when I fat finger the name of a method and and type it wrong, uh, I want to know straight away that I've done that so that I can fix it straight away rather than you know waiting a day and then there being like this day's worth of changes that I've made and I don't know which which change caused the error. So basically and, what you're saying is you like the tight feedback loop just for the sense that you're in the same headspace as the code when it yeah, when it tells I mean, you it's broken. I think of it as of a search space, right? Like if someone if if my code stopped working and the last time it was working was a day ago, I've got a day's worth of changes to search through. If my code stopped working and the last time it was working was um, 2 minutes ago, then it's it's easy for me to think about which files have I changed in the last two minutes, which which things could cost, possibly have caused this breakage. And to me, unit testing is the next level up after that stuff. of It's like a better compiler, right? It's like compiler plus plus. Mm-hmm. It's not just checking the syntax of my code. It's also checking that my code actually does what I expect it to do. And once you've got that feedback and that safety net underneath you, 
you start being able to to take code that you know is working and you have this kind of courage to improve it incrementally because you know that you can hit command B and command U to build and, and test stuff and get feedback that you haven't broken stuff. So you kind of, I kind of describe it as there's this um, this safety net that allows you to do amazing acrobatics. So uh, a developer or a team that have a good safety net of testing underneath them have the courage to continually improve the quality of their software rather than um, have it kind of degrade slowly over time. Yeah, the, the only other thing that I would really add is that uh, a lot of times there are things that uh, other developers do in the code. And so if they can assert that their code works the way that they expect, yep. Yep. Um, it, it's not just about um, improving with refactoring, but improving with adding new features. Mm-hmm. And so if I add a new feature and I touch something that somebody else had in there because I think I understand the code and I think I understand what it's supposed to do, if I'm wrong, it'll tell me. Yeah, so then it's a kind of a test's become a, a form of communication amongst uh, different people in the team. And actually, uh, let's be honest, most of the time they're communicating with future you. It's past you saying, hey, future you, future you, you, you did this wrong, right? Yeah, I was going to say, sometimes people put really dumb stuff in the code, yep. and so you have to go fix it. And usually those some people are me a week ago. Yep. <laughs> I can't count how many times I've run git blame on a line of code. And said, <laughs> who, who wrote this? And then I see my name and then I just quietly don't answer. Uh, yeah. Now, for me, the uh, the testing, you know, I, I totally agree with Pete. You get that, that feedback and protection against, you know, future breakages and really enabling refactoring rather than have, giving you that fear of, you know, like I'm, I want to make this change, but it's too big. It's too risky. It's too big of a leap from one lily pad to the next. And so you, you need a way to, to tell whether your app is broken. And, um, the other aspect of this that I'll, I'll say just because I've been working on a multi-year iOS project, uh, we have some really good testers and they are actually just poking around on the app doing really things that, uh, no normal human being probably would do, but they're trying to find ways to break the application. And when something just plain and outright doesn't work, like you, you click on a button and it doesn't do what it, we thought it would do or it crashes, that I don't want them spending their time on that. That is just complete, utter waste of human talent, right? They can find the much trickier issues, the things that are very hard for us to test in an automated fashion, like uh, starting to play some music and get on an elevator, you know, things like that, whereas I really see the value in having a good QA team. But I don't want them having to um, spend their time on on things that we can catch ourselves and we can we can write this once and continue to catch this behavior and make sure that it's working, right? Because the alternative is test the same thing every single time you're going to go to the App Store. And yep. that gets really old really fast. And there's definitely, there's organizations that do that, um, larger, just really l- larger organizations that can throw money at the problem. They just have a bunch of manual testers just testing the same thing over and over again. But if you're not a company with more money than God, then you should be thinking about how you use your resources and using this huge smart brain of a QA to to just follow a script is just a total waste of um, waste of a smart brain, right? Like any anyone can, or a, a, if a computer can do it for you, then why would you have a human do it? Computers are really good at doing the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. So I also want to ask you guys: Do you do any of you practice TDD? Never heard of it. <laughs> I I uh, I'm definitely in that camp in the Ruby community, and I don't think I'm very good at it. But I continually try because I feel like it makes me a better developer. I, and I've done it a few times just in like isolated practice on iOS, and it is certainly a lot harder to do 
But the end result of it, the reason why I keep coming back to it is when I abandon that, uh, that mindset, uh, like I'm never comfortable not writing tests, right? So if when I abandon TDD, you know, and I go off on this uh, sort of coding diatribe and I'm like, just, I know what I want to do. I just want to get there as fast as I can. And that's kind of rewarding, but that code then is untested and I don't feel uh, safe about that code. And then I go back and try to test it. It's almost always harder to go back and try to test that thing. And the longer I go, the more anxiety I have about my own code base breaking. And so, uh, you know, sometimes I will stop and say, okay, if I were to do this in a test driven way, how would I have structured these classes in a different way? Like, you know, make something uh, configurable via, I, I don't know if I, I should take a sidestep and say there's this thing called dependency injection, which you would typically have to do in C Sharp or Java to say, uh, I'm going to talk to this API. And so I have this API client and I want to inject a fake version of that so I can test it. Right. And so you would typically take it as a constructor arg and you'd pass in something that looks like that uh, API class, but is something different. It, you know, you don't necessarily have to do that in Objective-C. You could just say, make that a factory method on your class and then stub it in your test to return something else. So you don't, you know, you can provide these hooks in. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to just invert your entire design. Uh, so there's things like that, which if you were doing it in a test-driven way, those things would come to the surface more quickly. But I, I you know, it's, I can't say that I do TDD on iOS just because I find it a little bit too difficult. I think that there's a, I don't know, like there's a spectrum there as well from religious dogmatic TDD through to kind of thinking, like you, like you were saying, of, of, of thinking about how you would test this and, and letting that kind of help drive your design and then kind of doing tests alongside. So you're kind of write, write some code, then write some tests. You're not doing mm-hmm. tests first, but you're doing tests, tests at the same time or something like that. And then there's kind of, you know, test at some point after you've written the code and then there's like don't test at all. And I think even if you're not you, you even if you're not doing dogmatic TDD, even if you're just thinking as you're writing the code, like when I go to test this, um, how am I going to go to test it? It can still um, help drive your design, which is I guess which is what Chuck was hinting at earlier was TDD. So writing your tests before you write your code. Um, one of the big values there is it can actually help drive your design in a better place because you're forced to kind of compose your your code or write your code in a way that's decoupled and kind of isolated and uh, responsibilities tend to be in the right place because you need to basically all of your code like you're writing it uh, from the point of view of uh, the the client consuming that code uh, which tends to help you write code that's focused and has kind of clear separations of concerns yes speaking of that (laughs) ui view controllers (laughs) are not the place to put like your entire application. Right. Uh, and that's, that's part of the reason why I find like it's, it's difficult to test, um, especially when you're working on a project where either you're, you're working on a team or you're working with people who haven't, aren't exposed to this, this philosophy of design, like, uh, separating out concerns. Almost every sample app you find or, you know, guidance from Apple and things like this, you'll find code that deals with core location in your view <laughs> controller. Yep. You'll find networking code directly in your view controller. And some of that stuff is, it's okay, I guess, if you um, if you have a very simple interface to what you expect to get out of these frameworks, like core location. But, uh, you know, that makes it very difficult to test that thing because you depend on this thing that's kind of a living, breathing beast that has callbacks and can fail, and you have to simulate that in, in your environment. Um, if you can extract that type of stuff out into a, a much simpler, uh, much narrower API, like 
give me the location and here's a block that will tell you what the location is or an error that it failed. If you could extract something out that's that simple, then that becomes easier to test. And you have one thing that you can snip out in a test and, uh, you know, isolate rather than seven delegate methods. So I would argue that that is exactly why people should be test driving their view controller code, which is pretty extreme. And I think for someone, someone listening to this podcast who hasn't done that much unit testing, please don't start by, <laughs> by trying to test drive your, <laughs> your view controller code because you're going to tell all your friends how awful unit testing is and how it's, uh, it doesn't work. But I've been on projects and I've definitely talked to other other ThoughtWorks folks who have done that, like test driving, not just your view controller code, but actually test driving your nibs and uh, how the how your view hierarchy is constructed. I'm, I'm not sold that test driving building your view hierarchy actually makes sense, but test driving how your, um, how your view controllers interact with the rest of the universe forces you, or doesn't force you, but it, um, it's a design pressure that pushes you towards doing all that stuff that Ben was talking about, about not lumping everything into delegate methods and extracting out responsibilities because it's hard to test stuff in the view controller. And that's because the view controller should be the interface between uh, the presentation layer, which is hard to test, and the rest of your system. And if you try and put the entire thing of you, the entire bit of your system into that interface, then it's hard to test, and that's the tests giving you good design feedback that you, that your code is in the wrong place. So yeah, I think I you should be testing view controllers to force you to to write better code. I also want to just jump in here and and let people know that the skill of testing and the skill of uh, test driving your code, uh, both of those things are things that take practice. So if it's hard to begin with, it just takes practice to figure out um, when it's hard, and it's hard because you're kind of doing things in a way that makes it hard and when it's hard just because you don't have the the habits or the practice. So I think unit testing is the hardest thing I've ever had to learn in software. Like I, I've been doing it for probably going on for 10 years and I still find it really hard. I find it harder than any other thing I've had to learn in software. So I think people shouldn't be disheartened when they, they find it hard and they, it feels like it's a struggle and, and it takes a long time. It does take a long time, but it's worth it. But it's rewarding. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I think that the uh, what Pete said about the UI being hard to test is the answer to the question of why no one tests on iOS and Mac. Yeah, yeah. Um, because historically, there's so much focus on the UI in iOS applications and Mac applications. That, uh, and like you said, UI testing is hard, so that's why no one did it, does it. I think it's that's also, a, that's it's a really also asynchronous, right? It's, this is a smart client application. You're not testing a, a single-threaded web server code right. or, or like some uh, library components and things like that that have clear inputs and outputs are so easy to test. You just stub out the things you don't want to talk to, you make some assertions, whatever. That, that stuff you can learn, and you just pair with somebody who's done this before, and they'll be able to, to get you right along. But the, the things that become difficult are... I'm going to call this method and pass in a block for when it's going to call me back. And then I need to make sure that that block was called with specific arguments. Uh, that testing paradigm is much, much more complicated than uh, testing inputs and outputs, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think both, both, both of those things are true. And I, but I also think that if you're... And maybe Objective-C isn't the place to, to, to kind of hone these or to first learn these skills, but... Or let me rephrase that. <laughs> I think the... Um, the writing an iPhone app is, is quite a hard place to learn some of these things, but I actually think people are surprised, would be surprised at, if you do test-driven development on your iPhone app, how much stuff isn't view controller code or how much stuff isn't 
presentation layer code. It feels like it is when you're when it's all in one place, but once you actually pull it out, it turns out a lot of it is kind of application logic that you can test in isolation. Right. Yep. So, so do, do we want to get into some recommendations? Because I, I made the claim that I really hate send testing kit and then talked about mocks and stubs and how to isolate things, but we haven't dug into that yet. Yeah, I was going to ask what tools you guys use and what tools you recommend. And, and maybe we should get started by talking about the tools that are provided by Apple. <laughs> so the send testing kit uh, tools, it's another bundle that you have in your project, uh, or sorry, another target. And um, it's a test target. So when you hit command U, it will run the tests associated with this project. And it has no way of, or no easy way of isolating which tests to run. It just runs them all. And um, it will tell you when it will like jump straight, kind of like a build failure. It'll jump straight to the line that caused the problem and tell you what the problem is. Uh, this uh, send testing kit is also called OC unit, uh, but in the Xcode UI, you'll almost always see it referred to as send testing kit. And then there's there's no easy way to run these tests from the command line. Um, there is a way to, there's multiple ways you can do it. All of them have some drawbacks. Uh, the, my current method, which is not that great, is to remove the test host flag in your build settings. Uh, which will prevent the UI from popping up uh, when you run your test. But as such, you don't get to run any kind of UI kit related code uh, in your test. So if you're just testing logic for components that are decoupled from UI kit, then that's one way you can do it and get output uh, on the test uh, on the command line. And there are other ways that there are ways that you can run. So so there's um, there's these two types of tests that, that Ben was just talking about. There's the application tests and logic tests. I think those are the two words that Apple uses mm -hmm. for them. Logic tests don't interact with UI kit, so they don't actually need to run in the simulator. They can run on regular, just just uh, outside of the context of the simulator. Application tests are kind of more full stack, and they involve the UI, and they have to be run on the simulator, which makes them a little bit harder to run in the context of the command line. But there, there are ways to do it. And I'll, I'll have to dig up. My very, very smart, much smarter than me colleague, uh, Stu Gleedow, has got some good information on this because he spends a lot of time trying to trying to get things to work in this area. And I think Eloy Duran, the, the guy that, that maintains CocoaPods, he also has a, a way of doing this um, so that you can run your tests in uh, on Travis. Uh, which is right. a whole other topic so, of continuous integration. So my script is uh, based on his. Uh, oh, okay. I, I took his, uh, and it was a much more difficult to um, to adapt, I guess, to other projects because he was bypassing all of the uh, all of the built in. So there's a run unit test shell script that's built yeah. into your Xcode installation, and uh, that makes all kinds of assumptions and. It also has a warning that says unit tests are not run, uh, not supported from the command line or something like that, which is completely false. And you can change that warning to just let it continue and it will actually work from the command line. Um, and so uh, I think what he did is just take the pieces out of that that runs OC unit directly or OC test. I forget what the binary is named. But anyway, there, there's definitely a way to do this. But the point is, is that Apple should be providing us this stuff in a much more easy to use fashion instead of hacking their their scripts or bypassing them entirely it would certainly be nice if they just had a supported way of running tests from the command line absolutely and Agreed. i think it's a it's a cultural thing and i think it's um i think i actually i'm pretty convinced that it's one guy at apple on the xcode team who's a very smart engineer who's been maintaining this script <laughs> he's the <laughs> one guy i mean he's the one guy and if you search for any of the internals of that script he's the his live journal is the one that pops up 
from like 2006. It frustrates me a little bit. Uh, I, I had to stop myself from starting ranting about about this stuff. But um, yeah, it's just, it is definitely true that Apple just don't seem to really see the value in running this stuff as part of the continuous integration pipeline. So, so you brought up continuous integration. Is is there a good way to run it in continuous integration? Yeah, I think the the command line mode is the first hurdle. You have to figure out, okay, how do I run these from a script? Mm-hmm. And once you've solved that problem, then you're you're golden. It's just that with each version of Xcode, like you were saying, you you know they may change something which makes them not run anymore. It's difficult to know what the output is of your tests because it generates uh, gobs of just general build output and you kind of have to scroll up and find them. The script I'm currently using runs, it runs Ruby and it runs it through this colored uh, gem mm-hmm. to color line, line output. And so basically it just does a regex on each line. And if it thinks it's a test failure, it will color the line red. And so then I, I use that to really quickly jump to what the failure is. And I just run that from the command line. And there's, there's some other kind of scripts and tools out there to do stuff like code coverage. So code coverage is, is, is basically trying to find out how much of your application code is executed as part of a test run so that you, you have some kind of rough idea of which parts of your application are covered by tests and which bits aren't. And there's ways that you can hook into the test run to, to get that code coverage. It's, again, hard. It's not super well documented, uh, particularly because a lot of the tools that worked for GCC stopped working when everyone moved over to LLVM, which is the, like the new compiler t- tool chain. Um, but you can get stuff like code coverage. And actually, probably if you're coming from a Ruby background, the, the quality of the those metrics is actually better than in a lot of Ruby applications. So you can do stuff like code coverage. But I think, particularly for people who are getting started, the ability to run this stuff on the command line is... A great first step. I, I I encourage people to not get hung up on tools like um, like a continuous integration server. You, your first step is just to get this feedback in some way. And if getting that feedback is making sure you run all of your unit tests from the command line before you check in your code, then that can be as good as, or that can provide most of the value that a CI server provides without having to bother setting up a CI server. Like you don't have to do all of this stuff at once. You can you can ease your way into the the brave new world of continuous integration. Yeah, the other thing you can do is set up a Git hook. And uh, since uh, Mac OS is based on BSD or, you know, the Linux, Unix kind of stuff, most of these uh, command line tools actually return a regular code, or or I think it's a zero if they they run properly. And if there's some error while you're... uh, while you're running it, then it'll return another code like a minus one or something. And so, um, because of that, you can also set up a git hook. And when, when you try and commit or try and push, then you can have it give you feedback then. I've done it before. It's kind of painful if the tests take more than like a couple of seconds. But, uh, that is one thing that you can do. So it just won't let you push until, um, it's getting green across the board. Right. So there's there's some other tools out there. One of them is GHUnit, which uh, aimed to be like a complete replacement. It's uh, you don't use the send testing kit stuff for all the mentions we talked about. And the way they did it was you have uh, a library for doing assertions like this thing should be equal to that. And uh, they also have their own test runner, which runs in an iPhone simulator and it runs through all the tests and gives you a green or red output which is kind of nice when you're looking at it, but ultimately there's some value in kind of staying on the Xcode train um, as long as they uh, keep this thing working. And I use a tool called Kiwi. Uh, it maps closely to RSpec and Ruby. 
And um, so you have uh, what's called describe blocks and contexts and before blocks and it blocks and things like this, all block-based. But it allows me to kind of set up an environment and say, when I'm in this state, that I expect these things to happen. And uh, Kiwi includes a, a pretty powerful mocking and stubbing uh, support and um, more of a fluid interface or fluid, uh, what am I? What's the word I'm thinking of? A fluent language for asserting things. So instead of saying st assert equals this value, that value, uh, it actually, you actually have methods to say, you know, my string should equal this other string. And it reads a little bit better than the, the, these sort of assertive, uh, syntax of the, uh, st assert macros. And there was also another, um, another very similar tool that was actually a precursor to Kiwi called Cedar. Cedar, yeah. Yeah, from the, um, I think Adam Milligan is the guy at Pivotal. I think nowadays I would encourage people to use Kiwi because it's a little bit easier to set up and it well, it's also built, it's built share. on top of CentestKit. So yeah. all of the examples that you create in Kiwi are under the hood powered by CentestingKit. So you hit command U and Xcode and they just run and it jumps straight to the line where the problem was. That's the type of stuff that you are not going to get out of something like GHUnit or Cedar. And in general, yeah, I think Kiwi that's really, is just... really, valuable, actually. I think it's worth yeah. doing. I mean, that it's... that You know, I was saying that I think it's all about feedback and I think just getting that feedback in your IDE is is really compelling um, advantage of, of using the, the... or building on top of the Apple stuff. So, so effectively, what you're saying is that in Kiwi, you're calling something like Joe dot should equal Fred, and um, it translates that to an. Uh, it's it's S-T-S-3 close. It's like if, like that. If you squint, it's uh, objective it, C. It, it's, <laughs> it's objective C. So it's like pick a random uh, punctuation character, uh, or possibly a white space. That's actually what my pet peeve about uh, these. Like internal DSLs built in Objective C, yeah. as Objective C is a horrible language for DSLs. It's a great language in lots of other ways, but yeah, if you if you squint hard enough, it does kind of. Yeah. So so one so one thing you can do in Objective C is you can attach a method onto any object just by creating an NS object category, and uh, you can so once you include that category, you can just call the method as if it existed on the object. So should is one of those things. So you have anything like you have a date, a string, uh, whatever. You can call should, and then you have to close the square brackets because then you, nin- you, you then need to uh, send a message to whatever should returned, which is some sort of like expectation receiver. Okay. I don't know. If you've never designed a, a DSL, like none of this stuff is going to make any sense, but which is kind of why it's hard to write if you don't understand what's going on. But anyway, so should will return something like an expectation receiver, and then you'll say it should be equal to or it should be less than or greater than or after this date or before this date. And uh, the implementation of those matchers will raise a, a, a specific exception if they're not met. So where that breaks down is if you have something like a count, which comes back as an integer, and you want to call should on that, you can't do that in Objective C because it's just a scalar value. This this value is on the stack. There's no methods on it, uh, so you have to wrap it. And so there's a macro that you can call the value, pass in your value, whatever it's, it could be a float or a double or an integer or whatever, and then that wraps it in an NS value, which can receive all of these, you know, dynamic selectors. So you would say the value five should be equal to the value six or whatever, and then that would fail. Ah, got it. So yeah. that's that's it's, my it's kind of painful. Pe- yeah, that's my pet peeve with or my my fi- my theory with uh, things like things like Kiwi these internal DSLs is if you actually have to think about how it's implemented in order to write the in order to use the DSL, then 
I, I question the value of the DSL. Like, because yes, it might be easier to read, but if you're like stumbling over like, oh wait, so this thing returns a message receiver, so now I need to, you know, oh wait, this is a scale, this is a, you know, a primitive value, so I need to box it yeah. with the value. I kind of, like, I think it's great, but it's, it's, it's an awesome magic, but it also, maybe makes it a little bit intimidating for people who are just getting started because they're I totally agree with that. Yeah. Learning that you're learning like you're not just learning concepts in testing and concepts in mocking, you're also like learning like the deep dark magic of Objective C with method swizzling and, and categories and stuff like that. It's kind of learning everything at once isn't uh, you know another so one of my gripes about like plain assertion syntax, and this is in any language, is they'll say assert equals and then there's three parameters to it. There's two of them are values and one of them is like a description. And uh, so my gripe with there is the description, it should be optional, right? Like I should be able to just, based on what was passed in, I should be able to say I expected five, but I got six or something like that. But the order of those parameters you passed in, five and six, matter. Like the expected value and the actual value matter. And when you're when you're doing it wrong, it'll say expected six, but I got five. And that changes how you're going to debug the test. Right or fix the problem or whatever it is. Yeah, like totally. uh, the the, the uh, you need to really understand uh, what the message is telling you. And I find that I get confused of which value is which when I'm doing the uh, the assertion style. But that's probably because I've been using RSpec for so long that I, I kind of I kind of prefer this uh, the the wordier sort of punctuation heavy ver- version. Yeah, I like I like it too. I mean, I, I definitely prefer using not- to using unit testing style stuff. But it just yeah. Go ahead. If you don't like the Objective C syntax of Kiwi, an option to consider is Ruby Motion. Mm-hmm. You can test Objective C in Ruby Motion and integrate Objective C code into Ruby Motion. And they have an article on using their RSpec framework that's like it's called Bacon. And they have an article on how to do that. That so sounds very really interesting. An alternative uh, to consider. Sounds very tasty. Yeah, that is interesting. And I love Bacon. That's another <laughs> contribution from uh, Eloy Duran, actually. I think yep. he wrote Bacon. Yeah. So we've, we've kind of talked about uh, a lot of these tools for unit testing. I know that uh, Pete has written a testing framework that kind of goes a little beyond that called Frank. Yeah. You want to talk about Frank for a minute? Sure. So <laughs> I'm like... You have three minutes. Go. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> How long do we have? So um, so Frank is uh, like one of those class of tools that, that when I was talking earlier about kind of the spectrum from unit testing to acceptance testing. Frank is kind of more at the acceptance testing end. Uh, if you're familiar with the web testing world, it's pretty similar to Selenium or something like that. So it, it drives your your full application uh, using the UI. So it simulates user interactions rather than calling methods on classes. You're actually you're simulating the user and and it and then you, you can kind of drive the UI and then make assertions about the state of the UI. So Kind of a, a trivial example would be you want to check that the, that your login validation stuff works, and uh, in order to do that, you say you know type in my username into the into the username field, type in my password into the password fields, tap the login button, and I, and I should be on the home page, or I should see a message saying invalid password or whatever. So it's that really super high level thinking about things from the from the point of view of the user rather than thinking about implementation. And Frank is just is is one of these tools. I I think it's a pretty good one. Obviously, I'm pretty biased there, but so Frank is one option. The the official Apple tool is a thing called UI automation. There's a bunch of tools that kind of extend or build upon your UI automation in different ways. So there's, geez, I can't remember the name of all of them. Um, there's a thing called Zucchini. There's a thing called 
I can't remember the name of it, but it adds some nice like JavaScript and I think maybe CoffeeScript tools to UI automation. Um, I have to remember the name of it. I know what you're talking about. I'm drawing a blank as well. It's so funny. This is the second time this has happened to me when I've been describing these tools. I, I, like, I blank on this name. Anyway, there's, there's that thing. There's, there's a, a bunch of other things. There's a, there's a new tool called Appium, which implements the WebDriver wire protocol which is WebDriver is, is the new name for Selenium, basically. So you can use uh, a lot of the infrastructure you use for testing a web application to drive UI automation. Uh, so Appium is an interesting one. Um, so there's these, these different tools that, um, that build on top of it. There's, uh, there's Broken, which is um, from Bendyworks. That, I think, is one of the ones that builds on top of UI automation, if I remember correctly. Yes. Uh, so there's, there's that class of things. And then there's also... The other side of it is things that kind of re-implement UI automation. So Frank kind of is one of those. Um, there's a tool from Square called KIF, which, where you write your tests in Objective-C, your acceptance tests in Objective-C. One other one's, oh, and there's uh, Calabash, which is a tool that um, is very, very similar to Frank. It was kind of based on the same architecture as, as Frank, and that also there's, an, there's an, an Android implementation for that thing too. And so there's yeah there's a, there's a whole ecosystem out there. Yeah, um, I ha- I had I spent a fair amount of time with Kif, mm-hmm. and uh, I really liked it. the The end result, like we have a Mac Mini that runs Jenkins, it's running all our tests um, when we check in the code, and Kif would actually launch the simulator and actually tap on stuff like Frank does. And over time, it actually helped us beef up our accessibility because that that's how it has the hooks into your simulator that it knows what yeah. buttons to tap and that's et cetera. Pretty so much all of, almost all of these tools have that same, have that same property yeah. that they help you Im- improve your automation. Um, I found it really difficult to maintain this over time though. And it would kind of break for interesting reasons to the point where the team stopped having faith in the validity of a test failure, uh, which is a bad thing to have in a test suite, right? You want to, you want to make sure that when it breaks that everybody is looking at it. And, uh, so I ended up, uh, slowly but surely turning those off. And, uh, you know, I have grand plans for introducing something like Frank in the future, uh, something that we will uh, pay closer attention to so that when they fail, you know, people actually care. That's the, so. the golden rule with, um, with these high-level acceptance tests is lots of tests that fail are worse than no tests at all. Like, I, I honestly believe that they're worse than not having any tests at all. So I think it's actually better to... It, it would be better to just delete all of the tests apart from the ones that are passing and then uh, focus all of your energy into keeping those valuable tests passing rather than trying to add more tests that sometimes fail. Um, this is a lesson that a lot of teams learn over time. And it, it feels like when you first start using these tools, they're so, it feels like you're getting so much coverage so easily that you kind of, you kind of go to town and write a bunch of tests. And then um, six months later, you, you're really feeling the pain of maintaining these things and people aren't paying attention when they break. So at the point that you're not paying attention when this thing breaks, that you've lost all the value of the feedback. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's really, really important to have a small set of valuable tests rather than a big set of meh kind of, kind of valuable tests. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I, um, irritates me a little bit about KIF is they re-implemented everything from scratch. So they, they're not just um, doing kind of the high-level touch autom- automation and kind of uh, introspection stuff. They're also they also wrote their own um, kind of test runner and all of the stuff that Kiwi does. They kind of re-implemented. I, mm-hmm. I recently wrote a blog post. I'll, I'll add a link um, showing how you can do similar stuff to uh, well, do the exact same kind of testing you you do with Kif, but instead using Kiwi plus a library 
called public automation, which is the the kind of the underlying core of how Frank works. And and that that library just uses Apple's internal framework. It, Apple have this internal internal framework called UI automation, which is how UI automation the tool um, actually does touch synthesis. And me plus um, a couple of smart folks on the Frank mailing list figured out how to kind of unofficially kind of get our hooks into this private framework. And I wrote this um, library called Public Automation, which just is a thin wrapper over this private framework. And you can use that to do the same stuff that Kif does, but you're actually using UI automate. You're using Apple's own library to do it rather than redoing it from scratch. And you can use kind of best of breed. I hate that phrase. You can use, (laughs) (laughs) you can use um, the popular tools out there like Kiwi to, to, to do the, the kind of organizing of your tests and reporting on your tests and integrating into CI. I, I like, I think that's, a better approach, the Unix philosophy of small tools that are focused on one thing rather than a big tool that tries to re-implement uh, everything from scratch. Like, why, why should why should the KIF guys have to maintain a test runner when there's already uh, the Kiwi test runner works fine? Yeah, one one of my uh, kind of big bre- beefs with KIF is um, I, I'm trying to remember the specific change, but there was something that I needed, and it was make, causing my app to not be tested until I had this change and I go out there and I look and some guy has a pull request for it and uh, it was exactly the right fix they said everything looks good we'll merge it as soon as you sign this uh, contributor license agreement and he <laughs> he sent it to his uh, company's lawyers and they said nope that we're not going to sign that and so he said sorry I can't sign it and so there that change is sitting in limbo and you can use his his branch if you want but or his fork but it's not going to be included into into yeah. the main project, and they probably fixed that particular root blocker uh, since then. But uh, yeah, I see your I see your face in the uh, pull request list as well. <laughs> the, well, the, the, the CLA the CLA thing, the contributor license agreement thing, is that's a subtle one because um, so I've gone through a similar thing with Frank, where actually I wanted to change the license uh, with Frank to make it more palatable for companies. So. It used to have some GPL code in there, so the whole thing was I had this like quite aggressively open source license, which may make some companies nervous. Mm-hmm. That's actually, I think that, that well, I don't think I'm, I'm I, I know because I talked with the Calabash guys. That's the reason Calabash originally was written was because they looked at using Frank, but the, that license made them scared because uh, mm-hmm. they wanted to build a business around this, and and you want to make your product attractive to people that are going to pay you money. But in order for me to change the license, I actually have to go and find every single person that's ever contributed a line of code and get them to agree to changing the license. So the CLA, that, 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 it's tricky. I, mean, I agree that it's annoying to have that friction, but um, it's also, as a, as a maintainer of a project, it, it, it makes things a little bit easier when you want to do stuff that's for the benefit of the whole community. So it's pros and cons, swings and roundabouts, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All but right. I had the same. I had the same reaction when I first wanted to contribute to Kiffer. I was like, "Oh, CLA, that's really." <laughs> and then yeah, I yeah. found myself making one myself. So, <laughs> kind of went full circle on that one. You All guys right. have seen the uh, the the CLA like poster child uh, GitHub discussion. Have uh-uh. you seen that on the discourse project? Somebody had uh, a contributor's uh, text oh. file that said uh, "developer." And somebody uh, corrected it and sent them a pull request. And they're like, um, can you sign the CLA for us? <laughs> and the guy said, basically, nope, I'm not signing it. And so there was kind of joke that the guy would just be a developer forever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, we're pretty much out of time. 
Um, I, I know there's a lot more to say about testing. It's kind of a wide, broad subject. So we'll probably revisit it in the future and probably a little bit more focused on just one area, maybe unit tests or continuous integration or something. But, you know, I think we've had a pretty good discussion about why and how and what tools are out there and given people a lot of things to go check out. So I'm really excited to get this one out and uh, have people go and, and start playing with this stuff and, and start testing their code. Just because I've seen testing really make my life easier. And I think I think there are big payoffs for a lot of folks out there who aren't doing it, who just starting a little bit will get a lot out of it. So let's get into the picks. Ben, do you want to kick us off with picks? Sure. Uh, I've got four. One of them is Text Expander. I need to find more ways to use this tool, but uh, Text Expander allows you to recognize a snippet of code and expand it into something else. So uh, one of the ones I have is it's a FF flip table. So it's just flip table, all one word with an extra F at the beginning. And that produces the ASCII art flip table thing. It's kind of fun. And <laughs> things like that. Like if I want to uh, write out the command the, the Apple command logo. I can never remember what the code is to do that. Uh, so I have that as CCMD and I have OOPT for option, which uh, should actually work and, and like expand that into the actual symbol. Um, and I have it for canned emails that I have to send all the time. So I just have a, a quick snippet that just kind of, I find areas in my life where I can make something a little bit quicker and I try and create a text expander snippet for that. Uh, the next one is Alfred. And this has been my application launcher of choice uh, for a couple of years now. And um, I, I've used, I'm like a PowerPack subscriber and I just got onto the V2 of Alfred. And uh, it's got a clipboard history in there. It's got uh, an iTunes indexer so you can quickly just play any, any song or album, uh, launch applications. And I have it with workflows now. So uh, you can have it search Google or give you the weather or it's just like really programma- uh, programmable. Also Jenkins, which we mentioned in the show, we use that heavily at my job. And lastly, I thought I would uh, pull an Avdi Grimm and, uh, and do a booze pick. So I've been enjoying some Oban scotch. Nice. All right, Pete, what are your picks? So my first pick is uh, actually a product of Ben's. Ben, so uh, there's an NS Screencasts uh, on Kiwi. Uh, which is this testing tool we've been talking about today. And I believe that's one of the free ones. So, yeah, I um, think it is. There's your gateway drug to both unit testing yeah. and NS screencasts all wrapped <laughs> up in one. And I actually I actually just watched that the other day because I was stealing all of his material to do a talk about Kiwi. Um, oh, man, that was episode yeah. number four. Wow. It's, oh, yeah. That was over a year old. Yeah. Oh, wow. Do another one. It's a good one. It's, I mean, it's, it, it covers exactly what you need to get started, which is, which is great. Uh, I guess I've got a, a random pick um, uh, is uh, rock climbing. So I used to be into rock climbing um, back in back before I had a kid, <laughs> and I, I just recently went rock climbing for the first time in like three years. And I remembered how good it is to find an activity that's kind of totally not related to software. <laughs> and um, I realized that a lot of times doing these kind of things actually helps you. Um, uh, solve software problems in a weird way. So rock climbing is one of my picks. And then my last pick is an alcohol pick as well. This is <laughs> this is only for people who are listening in the West Coast, I think, because I don't know if it has distribution out in the East Coast. A lot of I'm a I'm a serious beer dork and um there's a brewery here in uh, San Francisco called Speakeasy and they have this kind of new beer which i I'm not sure if it's seasonal or I've not seen it before, but it's called Scarlet Red. 
and it's a rye beer and um, it's really really good uh, so um, scarlet red rye from uh, from prohibition but you you may only be able to get it in butte lake right <laughs> yeah yeah right yeah only only maybe only available in the west coast it's not from prohibition sorry their main the, the beer that they're most well known for is prohibition but speakeasy is the brewery scarlet red is the beer awesome rod what are your picks all right if you want to read uh more about testing and kiwi and all that stuff you can uh there's a book called test driven ios development by graham lee um so that's my my first pick and for my second pick as a baseball fan and a dodger fan i wanted to pick the movie 42 which i saw this weekend it is a uh, a movie about jackie robinson who was the first african-american to play in uh, major league baseball those are my picks awesome can i have a, a last minute extra pick <laughs> fine I just remembered, um, I don't know if, I might have already, I can't believe I'm, I'm already like not remembering stuff I might have already picked. Um, uh, there's a new uh, UI, a new book on UI automation from Pragmatic Programmers by yeah, the... Jonathan Penn. Yep, by the awesome Jonathan Penn. And um, so if you're, if you're looking into getting into UI automation, then uh, I think that's, that would uh, be a, a great resource. Uh, he also took taps on some other things he references things tools like frank but the focus is on using apple's ui automation tool nice all right so uh my picks my first pick is uh i I do a whole lot more web development than i do um mobile development um so my first pick i'm going to pick backbone js um, which is something that's really nice to help you organize your code um you can use it on mobile uh, web apps just like you can on regular web apps but yeah i'm going to pick that um, I'm also going to pick something as a counterpoint to Ben's pick of Alfred. I use LaunchBar, and uh, I've, I've really, really uh, liked what I've gotten from it. Um, it does all kinds of things. You can tell it to index your music, and then you can start typing in the names of songs, and it'll just play them um, in iTunes. You can uh, t- start typing in uh, app. You can tell it to just print stuff really big on your screen, um, and you can also if you just start typing numbers, it'll actually do math in there. So you can just, you know, check, check, check. Yeah. I'm sure Alfred (laughs) does more or less the same thing and more, you know, but anyway, it's, it's, it's really super nice. And so I'm going to pick that and, uh, I'm probably just going to stop there. So, uh, next week we're going to be talking to Josh Abernathy about iOS and Mac and the differences between them. So looking forward to that. And, uh, if you've been listening to the last three shows and you've been enjoying the show, I, we would all really appreciate it if you would go into iTunes and leave us a review. We did make it into new and noteworthy, but it would be nice to move up a little bit in new and noteworthy. So um, thank you for listening. We'll catch you all next week.